Welcome to another podcast at SliceOffice.com, brought to you by our friends at the Operating Engineers Local 139 and the Madison Teamsters Local 695. Joining us now, John Nichols from the Capital Times and the Nation. John, good morning. Good morning, Sly, and uh, happy holidays and Merry Christmas and all such things. Yeah, and happy Kwanzaa. We'll send that out to Glenn Grothman. Oh, indeed. He's a big, big, big Kwanzaa fan. It's time for the annual Glenn Grothman Kwanzaa story. Oh, my God. All right. So uh, the Colorado Supreme Court, the, uh, the members of the court are getting threats from all over the country probably all over the world, uh, because they've done something that certainly hasn't happened in our lifetime. Uh, you'd have to go back a couple years on that one. There certainly weren't automobiles the last time it happened. Your thoughts? Well, first and foremost, it has never happened. This is the important thing to understand. This is the first time that a candidate for president or someone who's a, a likely contender for president has been disqualified in this way. Um, uh, the 14th Amendment, Section 3, was written after the Civil War, included in the Constitution, in what are sometimes referred to as the Civil War Reconstruction Amendments. And um, 14.3 was written uh, because of a concern that people who had been government officials before the Civil War and had sworn an oath to the United States of America, then abandoned that oath, and joined the Confederacy in rebellion or insurrection against the United States. They feared that these people might come back into American politics and rise to positions of power. You mean like some of uh, Jeff Sessions' ancestors? Um, I guess you might be right. Well, (laughs) frankly, to be honest, quite a lot of people's ancestors, right? Because these are the... There were many, many people. I mean, one of the things to understand, I don't want to go too far into the weeds on this, but this is, a, this is a major deal, because in the Civil War, if you will recall, Lincoln's first, inaugur- first uh, address to the nation, he was talking about having to fill Supreme Court posts and all other positions, because all these people who had been a part of the government of the United States had quit and gone with the Confederacy, and all sorts of generals and all sorts of other people. And so um, the folks who were adding amendments to the Constitution in the aftermath of the Civil War, were deeply concerned that those who had abandoned the basic premises of the American experiment, of the United States, as a democratic republic, would now, in the post-Civil War era, kind of sneak back into governance and potentially, again, in positions of power, either undermine or abandon the basic premises of, of the democratic republic. So it was a pretty, it was a very specific act. However, and this is the important thing to understand, much of the Constitution is written in specific acts, right? In, in understanding of a moment, right? They they changed how the vice president was chosen after they had a crisis with the vice presidency, Aaron Burr, you know, ultimately shooting Alexander Hamilton. What's wrong with and that? So, well, <laughs> it's the wrong slide. <laughs> I just want to tell you. This is something that they, they didn't really want to perpetuate oh. the crises that led to Aaron Burr being vice president. And so, you know, many things are written in specific moments, but they extend into the future, right? They don't just, they don't, you know, kind of die with their moment, right? And so we choose the vice presidency in a certain way now because of what happened in the 
you know, early, very early 1800s, and there was an amendment there. And we have 14.3, this uh, clause that allows for the disqualification of a candidate who has participated in um, some sort of attempt to overthrow or rebel against or undermine the basic processes of, of the United States. So that's what gets us to here, right? Right. And it is the first time, again, as I said before, the first time that a candidate for president has been disqualified on this basis. Do you remember one last thing I'll say to you, though? Remember that candidates for president are often disqualified, right? This is something, you know, we were like, oh, well, it's the first time anybody's ever been disqualified. No. Somebody who's under age 35 is disqualified. Somebody who wasn't born in the United States is disqualified. I mean, there are there there are many ways in which people are not allowed to run for the presidency because they can't qualify for the office if they were to win it. This is one other way in which that can happen, and the Colorado court decided to apply it. So now, had the United States Senate done its job and not only impeach or convict, but also yeah. pass the, the, there would have had to been a second vote where they would have barred him from office for the rest of his life. They didn't, do, they it, didn't do that. They did not. And the historian, uh, Eric Foner, who's the great historian of the Reconstruction era, and you know, it's written on these amendments extensively, uh, he has said that it could even be easier, that Congress could, you know, tomorrow uh, take up, although obviously the House Republicans probably wouldn't do this, could take up a resolution saying, um, you know, that Donald Trump, in this case, is disqualified um, under the 14th Amendment, Section 3. They could just vote on that by a majority vote. And um, Boner says that that would that would meet the standard, right? Because this isn't a legal standard slide. You don't have to be convicted of having done something. And I think that's the thing that... Interpretation. I think that's, that's the thing that a lot of people have a problem with, including myself. Well, and, and the precedent this and the precedent this sets because That's you know there talk. are some states where there aren't good players. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> I, I don't That's trust. I don't trust anything in Arkansas anymore. A once great state. Well, Texas well, having some. Well, at least a, a mediocre state. <laughs> but Texas <laughs> is having some trouble on this. Oh this yeah. Is, yeah. And so this is the thing. But here's what we should do: is, is that Ken Pax, that Ken Paxton's a real doozy. Lieutenant Governor's home is own, though. Oh, that guy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's be honest. I think he's a former broadcaster. <laughs> but, but, and, and, and we know what happens with former broadcasters. Yeah, we right? sure do. Um, especially those educated at, at fine state colleges. Um, <laughs> now, so but let's, let's separate two things here, okay? And, and, uh, and, and then I think the, the discussion kind of gets, gets deeper and clearer. Um, First off, is it within the realm of the Colorado Supreme Court under 14.3 to disqualify a candidate um, if it interprets the facts uh, to say that that individual has um, contravened 14.3, right, to meet the standard? Um, yeah, it is. I mean, this is exactly how this would work, right? A court would, would interpret it. A person doesn't have to be convicted. They simply have to say, look, these are the facts. We see, see these facts. That meets the standard. As such, the person cannot be on the ballot um, because they cannot hold the office. That, what the court did up to that point is completely understandable 
and it is completely within the realm of, of what might have been thought of or might be thought of by constitutional scholars, including people like Lawrence Tribe and Jamie Raskin, who uh, was a constitutional professor before he went to Congress. But here's where the complexity comes in, and you raise it, you know, and, and that is that because this allows for interpretation, right, because there isn't a, uh, a clear standard of how you define it, and that, that's obviously the complexity with a lot of the Constitution, right? There are many things that, that end up being interpreted rather than, than, you know, spelled out exactly how it works. Because this is open to interpretation, and because the United States is so deeply divided politically, um, you do enter into this complex next zone, which is if a court in Colorado decides to disqualify Donald Trump for what I think many people would see as legitimate reasons, legitimate application of 14.3, could a court in Arkansas, as your example suggests, or Texas or someplace else, um, disqualify Joe Biden? Well, because of the arcane corrupt system that we elect presidents with, uh, which is a terrible thing, uh, rooted in racism. And uh, rooted in the Constitution, I might add. Right. So it's, uh, you know, the the, the states that would matter in this would be Georgia, Arizona, Wisconsin, maybe Minnesota, Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, North Carolina. It's only a handful of states that are truly deciding the presidency, which is absurd. It's absurd, but it also raises another concern here, right? Because you, as you list those states, right, they different different ideological groupings control their courts. Yeah, and we're so, good in Pennsylvania, <laughs> Michigan, and Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, um, not sure about Georgia, um, and but but also, and understand there are judges who may be conservative or liberal who actually do try to interpret the law as best they can. Um, this isn't just a Republican-Democrat thing or a liberal-conservative thing. Uh, in fact, some of the people who brought the lawsuit in uh, Colorado were prominent Colorado Republicans, right, who brought the 14.3 action there. So it, it's not just about that. There can be people who cross lines and stuff. But the fear that we've got at this point might be that you end up with a race to disqualification, right, that you're disqualifying all over the place. And that's what I will suggest to you is going to become the grounding for the U.S. Supreme Court's intervention on this, which I think will come very quickly. And I think it will be, I think they'll actually try to do it before January 5th. I may be wrong. and I, You can always be wrong about the court. Does, does Ginny um, Thomas get a vote on this? Um, only at the <laughs> dinner table. Um, you know, but, uh, but this is where it gets I don't think, I think we're going to see a recusal in. from Clarence Thomas. Do you? Well, if you're going to give recusals, right, you got three members of the court who were appointed by one of the guys involved in this, right? So, I mean, it's, the recusal thing becomes really complicated. Um, but there should be a lot of recusal, probably. Bottom line is this, though. Bottom line is this. Um, I think the court is likely, not certain, but likely to do a so-called practical uh, intervention rather than a particularly legalistic in- intervention. And they do this sometimes. Um, in 2000, when they decided Bush v. Gore and made Bush the president of the United States, remember, the court that, that did that effectively, what they basically said was um, this process could go on for a really long time and the country might be without a president. 
and we just can't have that happen. And so they basically put their thumb on the scale and said, at this point, we're stopping all the processes, locking this in effectively for one guy. Hmm. Now, do you think if Al Gore had been 500 votes ahead, they would have done that? Probably not. Probably would have been five four the other way. Um, and but here's but but they did they did something and and uh, Judge Posner and others have argued that that was appropriate, right? That practically the court will sometimes intervene to prevent a chaotic situation, even if it is not a satisfying legal interpretation. All right. Act. All right. Now let's. Uh... This is former Senator Claire McCaskill of Missouri and Morning Joe the other day talking about this. This, I believe, is one of Well, that, that is America not the right clip. I, I, I don't know how that happened. Hang on a second here. I knew I'd get something wrong here. Hang on. Isn't it? It is. Um, I have taken the time to read some scholarly treatises on this issue, and there are some really smart lawyers who have come down on both sides. Um, And so it is one that is absolutely just made for the Supreme Court to make a decision. Now, there's two hats here I wear. One is a lawyer and one is somebody who's run for office and cares deeply about the election next year. The lawyer says this is pretty obvious, um, that this is, especially to a Supreme Court who's so fixated on textualism and originalism, because what the language is, if you put it in context of when it was written and what it was written about, um, this is a tough one for the Supreme Court to abandon their two pillars that they claim to be making all their decisions around. So as a lawyer, I get this, and I think there is a real strong case for the Supreme Court to agree with Colorado. As somebody who is a politician, I think it's a real bad decision because I think it really helps Donald Trump. And um, I don't like anything that helps Donald Trump. I find myself in the weird position of agreeing with Bill Barr in terms of it helping him. I think it does help him. And so... Uh, you know, in a perfect world, if I could write the script, the Supreme Court would put put him back on the ballot, and then he would be defeated soundly. All right, your response to that? Well, I think she just said uh, basically she summed up what I, I think we were talking about mm-hmm. a couple minutes ago, which is that um, you look at the law, you look at the clear reading of what what is on paper in the Constitution, um, as Jamie Raskin has said, you know. This isn't a really debatable point. You've got someone who meets the standard, you can disqualify. But then you have that that reality of this deeply divided nation and the chaotic situation that can extend from such a moment, right? And we already have people saying in Texas, well, then we're going to disqualify um, Joe Biden, right? And so then you have that, that notion of the practical intervention by the court, right? And it's interesting that the Colorado decision was written... Um, very specifically to appeal to some of the conservative members of the court. There are elements of the decision that seem to be telegraphed directly to Neil Gorsuch, right, to basically say, you know, you wrote rulings about states' rights in exactly these kinds of areas. And a, a, you know, a Colorado native, I might add. Right, lives just up the road. And so basically what they're saying is, um, you know, you're a hypocrite if you don't, rule in the same way that the Colorado court does, if you don't uphold what the Colorado court did. However, um, I know it's going to surprise you, Sly, that hypocrisy sometimes 
does no. service on the Supreme Court. You are so cynical. And they also, right, the Supreme Court also has this sort of you know, super judicial role that, frankly, is not always about strict construction. It's interesting that our, many of our conservative friends talk about strict construction, i.e. reading the Constitution exactly as it's written. What you're going to see is strict constructionists saying, nope, <laughs> I'm not going to strictly construct. I'm not going to read it exactly as it's written. Uh, in this case, again, I think, as Clara McCaffrey suggests, uh, and I would suggest, it is likely that the Supreme Court is not going to make a big decision about whether 14.3 applies in this case. Some, someday. What I they will say is that it's impractical to allow this, mm-hmm. because if they do, then you end up with you know, chaos and perhaps even worse. So it's, it's kind of confusing, and we can talk about this another day because it would take up the, the rest of the show. The complexities of presidential elections with state law, state sovereignty, but it's for a federal election. And I think that is very confusing for people. It's a disastrous mess, right? You know, it, it, look, here's, here's the deal. At the founding of the, of the Republic, and I've written books on this and done a lot about this stuff, at the founding of the Republic... Um, there are a lot of people who were exceptionally uncomfortable with the idea of a strong federal government, right? And uh, they frankly were exceptionally uncomfortable with a strong presidency. That's why so many, you know, avenues were developed uh, at the founding of the country and in the early years of the country for constraining the presidency, right? The president can't declare wars, according to the Constitution. The president uh, can't levy taxes, right? The president, there's all sorts of things that the president can't do. Um, the president can be impeached and removed from office. The president cannot impeach and remove Congress, right? So there was a lot of it. At the start mm-hmm. of the country, there was just a lot of understanding that the president should be constrained, but also that it should be a smaller office than what we now interpret it as, right? Well, certainly, we as, Donald it. Trump, certainly as Donald Trump <laughs> yeah. views but it I'll that. I'll that every modern president's lie. Let's be honest here. This has become an imperial presidency, right? I mean, it, it, it's so much bigger than, than what it was at the founding. And so all I'm saying here is that we have not done much to update how we choose a president, if indeed that is the way to go, right? You know, instead of, instead of saying over time, as most countries have, like we now have in the history of the world, we have a very, very, very old constitution, right? Most countries have had periods of constitutional reform. They've written new constitutions. They've found new ways to do this. Some and countries don't have constitutions. Some do not. And But what they do do is they look practically at the realities of the circumstance, and they look at experience, right? They say, okay, some of these things happen. These challenges arise. We should, we should figure out how to avoid it. Well, one of the ways to figure out how to avoid it, I would suggest, and obviously there are those who will disagree with me, is to get rid of the Electoral College, right, and have a direct election of the presidency, right? Have the, have the president elected, you know, by popular vote, the same way that mayors are elected, the same way that governors are elected, the same way that members of Congress are elected. You know what I mean? It's, oh, I, we have this unique... We're in a total agreement on that one. All right, we're going to take a quick break. John Nichols from the Capital Times and the Nation with us at SliesOffice.com. We're back at SliesOffice.com, brought to you by our friends at Madison Computer Works and Jeff's Guitar Clinic in Fort Atkinson. John Nichols from the Capital Times. I want to 
play something from uh, Donald Trump. Now, he was president of the United States. Here's a guy that uh, grew up. He got to go to an Ivy League school. He grew up in New York. He could be around all sorts of people that would, uh, you know, possibly be a good influence on his life. And this is what we've ended up with. We got a lot of work to do. You know, when they let, I think the real number is 15, 16 million people into our country. When they do that, we got a lot of work to do. They're poisoning the blood of our country. We have no idea who any of them are. They come from Africa. They come from Asia. They come from South America. And it's true. They're destroying the blood of our country. That's what they're doing. They're destroying our country. They don't like it when I said that. And I never read Mein Kampf. They said, oh, Hitler said that in a much different way. You know, they're coming from all over the world, people all over the world. We have no idea. They could be healthy. They could be very unhealthy. They could bring in disease that's going to catch on in our country. But they do bring in crime. But they have them coming from all over the world. And they're destroying the blood of our country. They're destroying the fabric of our country. And we're going to have to get them out. Blood of our country. Hmm. Yeah. Now, a lot of people have reacted to that, saying those are words that Hitler would use or other fascists. I'd kind of like to look at this from the perspective of he's just dead wrong. Immigrants are making America a better country. Right. You begin with that basic premise. Can we? Can, yeah, I know. I, I, I think a lot of people overlook that. And I, I, I yeah, I it's think something we, we have to, it, it's something that I think we all, you know, you have to, you have to have been out and about, right? You have to have seen a few things to know how much immigrants add to this country. Look, uh, Canada has just, Canada is exploding in population. You know, they used to be about 35 million people. They're 40 million people now because they aggressively pursue immigrants coming to their country. And, and it has worked it has been hugely fabulously. Beneficial. Yeah. And, and, you know, they're not the only country in the world. There are many countries in the world that, that seek immigration. Um, and it can be complicated, Cy. Let's be honest. There, you know, there are times that, that, that any change can be complicated. But out of that complication comes, a great, I would argue, a great deal of strength. And, you know, look, uh, when my ancestors came to this country uh, from Cornwall in England in the 1820s um, and from, uh, you know, well, others on the other side even before that, um, when they came, there were people who didn't want anybody new coming, right? You had a know-nothing movement in the 1840s, 1850s, that that actually was, you know, against certain kinds of immigrants, uh, uh, I think very much against Catholics, as a matter of fact. Um, and, and no, that, no Bridgets will be hired. There used to be some. No Irish need to fly. Yeah. No Irish need to fly. Mm-hmm. Anti-Italian sentiment. Uh, remember in Wisconsin, we had a great battle in the 1890s about whether um, school students could be taught in German. And the determination was that that was bad, right? That, that you know, German speakers were some kind of problem. Um, and... So, I mean, this is this is not new to America. We've had this. And yet we have come through it, right? We've come through it again and again and again. And the interesting thing is that that groups that were once, you know, disparaged or groups that were once rejected have become, you know, dynamic forces within this country, central to, to its story. Um, 
Irish, an Irish uh, president, uh, John Kennedy, uh, actually wrote a book, I think it was called Nation of Immigrants, that, that explored all this and did it really, really well. And it's, it's a sad thing. It's a tragic thing for this country that we've, you know, that we don't just progress on a, on a steady arc, right? That we don't, you know, get the understanding that Kennedy gave us and then move forward from that. So, right? but, but Donald um, so Trump... Go back and forth. Donald Trump knows what he's doing. He knows there's a lot of anxiety about immigration right now, even in states like Illinois and, and New York. Well, and that anxiety about immigration, right, is, for the most part, I would argue, an anxiety about economics, right? An anxiety about, you know, how you organize an economy to make sure that people are secure and that people, you know, have decent lives. Um, and there is there's sort of a sense of scarcity, right? That, that somehow, if more people come, there'll be less opportunities for me, right? And history's proven that isn't the case, right? It is also proven that immigrants, um, by and large, become really incredibly major contributors very quickly, right? They, they work hard. They start businesses. They, you know, engage in their communities. They build up churches. You know, Catholic churches across this country are doing well in many places because of immigration, right? And and so there's so much well, that comes of it. But if we don't you, talk about if it you, that way. We tend if to you talk go about back in Madison and Milwaukee's history, there were Catholic Polish churches, Catholic Irish churches, Catholic, Catholic German, German churches, right? And uh, they they thrived and they flourished and people definitely became mainstreamed into the American culture, but they were able to worship at a house that they felt comfortable in and could communicate with people. Here is uh, someone who is of descent from Belarus. Uh, you may recognize the voice, John. We are being conquered. This is a complete resettlement of America in real time. Now when you have millions of people coming in from different cultures and different ways of living and different belief systems, unless there is massive, large-scale deportations by the millions, it will be irrevocable. Good. That is Stephen Miller, mm -hmm. uh, someone who certainly would serve in a second Trump administration, clearly not understanding the basic foundation of America. Well, and um, some have said um, his own family's immigrant story, right? That that uh, uh, coming coming from difficult circumstances and arriving in America and and building a, a life in this country, and and you know that's the that's the difficult part of it. Um, many of us are not that far from our immigrant roots, right? And yet um, somehow it's like you know you pull the ladder up behind you, right? you know you're, you're like. Okay, I got here. I don't want I don't want other people to come, and I don't want to try and understand them when they come. And again, you know, it's easy to get all exercised about what Trump's saying right now, and I think you know, understandable. But it is also important to understand this is a this has been a constant in our history. We have had anti-immigrant candidates, anti-immigrant waves and periods, and the question is whether we're having that now or not. And what I will tell you is that this goes to this deep, deep division in America. And the fact of the matter is that on, on the Republican side, there is a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment, sentiment. Not entirely, though, because there are some Republican governors who have actually been a little bit different on these issues. Um, on the Democratic side, there's a lot of pro-immigrant sentiment. Uh, and 
And so we're a very divided country. And some of this will come to a head in the next election, right? People will, this will be one of the many issues on which people vote. And, um, you know, that is, history tells us that ultimately we tend to get these things right as a country. Um, the question, of course, in 2024 is will we get it right then? And what I can tell you is that John Kennedy, again, going back to that 1960 election, critical, pivotal election for sort of transforming the United States, John Kennedy chose to speak a lot about immigration in that election because he was Irish Catholic, um, seen, you know, as someone who was, you know, changing the, the dynamic, an Irish Catholic president potentially. And so he chose to speak a lot about immigration, and he did so in very positive ways, and the, and, but also very practical ways, talking about you know, needing to have good systems, good structures. And um, he won. He didn't win by a lot. And it isn't that Nixon was all that bad, but it is that, that at that point there was, you know, there was concern in the country, there was division, and instead of running away from it, Kennedy chose to run to it. And, and what I would suggest is for Joe Biden if he seeks re-election, if indeed, you know, this becomes a... a what do you mean if he seeks re-election? Well, I don't mean if, you know, but if he is seeking re-election in a context where this, is, this issue rises to a head, right, where it becomes very central to the campaign, he's got to talk about it, right? You can't avoid it, right? You can't say, oh, I'm going to change the topic to something else. That's not the way to do it. The way to do it is to say, mm, this guy's wrong. The other guy's wrong. Immigrants are, you know, it's basically what you've just been saying. Yeah, you know, and, and the White House has been quite aggressive in going after the racist a angle of Trump and the fascist angle. But, you know, the basic premise that immigrants yeah. are harming America is a false one. All right, let's switch to something funny. Have you heard of the, uh, have you heard of the website Cameo? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Okay. This is where notorious people can make a little extra money recording greetings. And, and can I quickly and they're add, expensive. not just notorious, yes. but, well, a little bit, but not just notorious. I was at a friend's uh, birthday the, recently where Engelbert, Engelbert Humperdinck, uh, you know, phoned in with his birthday greetings. Well, there you go. I, I, of course, uh, I, of course, got one from Rod Blagojevich for my birthday. Who I believe is one of the stars of Cameo. <laughs> I'm sure he is. Um, so here is uh, here is Rudolph Giuliani. It's a montage of his uh, way of uh, trying to make up one hundred and seventy eight million dollars. All right, hang on a second here. Hello to the people of Auckland, New Zealand. I've been there. I'm a little teapot, short and stout. Happy birthday, Molly. I understand your birthday's coming up. Here's my handle. Here's my spout. You are a big fan of and dedicated to Make America Great Again. Beautiful part of the world. Anytime you want to invite me back, invite me. I'll be there. <laughs> good. It's good. I don't think it's got... I, I really think it has George Santos's panache. Yes. Yes. He's doing Santos, this as well. But Santos seems to have been made for it. I mean, he's, he's a natural. Giuliani um, <laughs> is certainly trying. He's got a little more humor than some. There's the worst cameos are the people who really clearly, you know, it's like a hostage video. They hate doing it, but they do it because there's some money in it. You know, you want people who are kind of gleefully into it. 
Um, okay. That's what Santos. But let, let's take the airplane up a couple thousand feet here, John. This was right. this uh, was this was a multi-millionaire former mayor of New York City who could have ridden out the rest of his life with extreme comfort and joy, right? And and who, in fact, at one point for a few weeks was thought of as potential president of the United States of America. Oh, until Joe Biden came up with that great line about adding a noun and a verb. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. It was very effective. It and was. Probably, that, line, that, that line from Joe Biden probably made him vice president. <laughs> probably so. did. So uh, it, it is remarkable. Had Rudy read Rick Wilson's book, Everything Trump Touches Dies, uh, maybe we, he wouldn't be in this situation. There's some truth to that. Uh, you know, there's, there's some evidence of that. And, and, you know, the, the bizarre thing about Giuliani was he was never perfect, right? There were always people who pointed out that, you know, going back to the 1980s, that there were, there were elements of this guy that didn't feel right. His, his campaign against David Dinkins, um, his second campaign against David Dinkins, was pretty ugly, right? And so he's, he's um, always been willing to, to stretch the limits, to go across lines that, that you probably shouldn't go across. But... Um, obviously, the you know nine eleven, you know, made him into this epic figure, America's mayor, and um, and he rolled that very successfully for a while. Uh, his choice to become a part of the Trump operation, um, particularly as regards the election in in twenty twenty, uh, has proven to be disastrous for him, right, it, it, on all sorts of levels, both in the courts and and I think in his reputation. And now he's doing cameos, right? I mean, it's it's it is it is a a tragic fall in some ways. And yet he's still also, yet he's still auditioning for Donald Trump. Well, and and you understand why because you know once you've gotten into this situation, right? When you're so down the rabbit hole, um, your only hope, right, is is a Trump presidency, right? A second Trump presidency. That that for for Giuliani has some prospects of, you know, redemption, right? So he was, he was going to go there. And, and, um, and you'll see that with other folks. I mean, but what's interesting to me, actually, is how Giuliani becomes a cautionary tale, I think, for many of the other people who were close to Trump, right? And they are, um, you look at, like, Bob Barr and people like that, it seems like they're putting a lot of distance. Right. They're they're actually. Oh, saying, mm, he is. I don't want to go. He, to has, that he has done that. Now, one person who's tried to walk a fine line, who is clearly now in more trouble, is Ronna McDaniel. Ronna Romney yeah. McDaniel, who uh, the Detroit News, which is a conservative newspaper, has mm -hmm. unearthed the audio recording of Donald Trump urging a couple election officials that sit on the Wayne County Board of Elections to not certify the election. Now, I remember when this happened. Now, oh, yeah. my, when, when Donald Trump evidently says in this phone call, and they have not released the audio yet, we can't let these people win. Uh, tell me, John, uh, tell me about the makeup of Wayne County. What What's the prominent city in Wayne County, and what would be the makeup of Wayne County? Uh, makeup of Wayne County. The prominent city is Detroit, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And the makeup of Wayne County is, it's one of the it's a county with one of the largest African American populations in the country. Uh -huh. um, 
I mean, it's also a diverse county. There's there's a, a lot of, of uh, there are a lot of immigrants there. There's a lot of Arab Americans there. There's a lot of Jewish uh, Americans. Jewish Americans for sure in in some of the suburbs, especially. Um, and if you add it all together, right? If you put put it all together, um, it kind of has historically said one thing: Democrat. So when he says these people, that's quite an interesting uh, statement about him. It isn't necessarily his his constituency, so to speak, and and so what you you clearly see what what is what is happening here, right? And you you said pressure. Some people would say strong arm. You know, there's an effort to push these folks to do this. And intriguingly enough, as you point out, Rana Romney McDaniel was in the mix there, and I think that surprises a lot of people. Um, that she was she was present and supportive, apparently, and, and engaged with it. Um, that's probably good for her as regards her role in the party, because there's some folks who haven't thought she was loyal enough. Oh, to, sure, to, yeah. But uh-huh. maybe, maybe this is beneficial to her in that regard. But as regards um, the law, right, you know, pressuring people to, to do things that are, inappropriate, right, that, that potentially illegal. Um, that's an interesting development because Michigan, I will remind you, has probably the most aggressive attorney general in the United States on some of these issues, Dana Nessel, and um, she's one of the first to really stepped out on on following this these issues through and, and, and bringing them into the courts. And they also have in Jocelyn Benson, a secretary of state, who has said that that this specific fight over the uh, Wayne County results was was the most difficult, was one of the most difficult aspects of that whole struggle in 2000. So um, this story is not going to go away. I think it's going to be continue to be a subject of much discussion, especially in Michigan. Well, but also and one wonders. In, in Milwaukee, because Ronna Romney McDaniel is coming to Milwaukee with the Republican National Convention. And one wonders whether Jack Smith is going to care about this. Hmm. Well, he's got a lot on his plate. Well, he does, but, you know, there's ne- there's never a point where you uh, stop taking evidence into your collection when you're going after someone like Donald Trump. John Nichols from the Capital Times and The Nation, thanks for coming to Sly's office. Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I'm going to say Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you and to everybody uh, who listens in. Um, it is one of the great pleasures of my life to talk politics with you. Likewise. Thank you, Mr. Nichols.